Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Advocating for Action in HCC, Delivering Impartial and Personalized Care, is provided by Axis Medical Education. This educational activity is supported by a medical education grant from Exelixis Incorporated and an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity, Advocating for Action in HCC, Delivering Impartial and Personalized Care. I'm Dr. Monica Baskin. I'm delighted to um, present to you a little bit more about understanding health disparities and inequities in HCC. Dr. Lovett will then join us to discuss targeted therapies and a new era in HCC management combination therapies. Here is a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. Here's our financial disclosure information. And these are the learning objectives for this activity. To start, let's make sure we understand what is meant by health and healthcare disparities. So when we're talking about health and healthcare disparities, we're referencing the differences in health or healthcare between groups that are closely linked with social, economic, and environmental disadvantage. So these can be um, such examples of race and ethnicity, socioeconomic status, their physical location, sex, disability status, and sexual orientation. More specifically, the National Cancer Institute defines cancer health disparities as differences in cancer measures such as the number of new cases, all existing cases, deaths, cancer-related health complications, survivorship, financial burden, screening rates, or stage at diagnosis. One such example is depicted here in this graph um, by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's looking at cancer death rates by race and ethnicity for the years 2013 to 2017. What you will see here is that the rates of cancer deaths do vary by race and ethnicity, with non-Hispanic Blacks, both male and female, having higher rates of cancer deaths during that period um, than any other racial ethnic group. You might also notice the difference is between males and females, where overall, uh, males were more likely to die from cancer than females across each of those groups. So then you may ask, why do these disparities exist? And there are a number of reasons in the literature that suggest why we may see the differences in cancer health outcomes. So there are social determinants of health. So things beyond biology may be implicated in these disparities. We also know that unconscious or implicit bias has a role, as well as uh, limitations in trust, both between patients and providers, as well as patients and the healthcare system in general. Uh, as well as there may be implications of the way in which um, systems and providers are paid that may play a role. So we'll briefly talk about each one of those now. First is social determinants of health. So we all probably easily recognize that our biology and our, our genetics play a, a role in our health and health outcomes. But what literature has shown is that there are these other things that are not related directly to our physiology that have an implication on our health and, and outcomes. Um, those things include economic stability, so whether or not an individual is employed, their income, and other kinds of things related to economics plays a major role. We also know that the neighborhood and physical environment, or basically where people live, you may have heard um, the phrase that your zip code may be just as important as your genetic code in determining your health. So where you live, your housing and transportation, all of that plays a role in terms of our health outcomes. Education is another one of those areas that's considered to be a social determinant of health. So not only your formal education, but it also might be related to just issues of literacy, your basic understanding of what's happening specifically around your health. Food is another one of the social determinants. So whether or not you have appropriate or adequate food or experiencing hunger, if you have access to healthy options in your community. The community and social context has also been identified as an implication in disparity. So whether or not you have appropriate social supports to help you through um, your cancer and other issues, whether or not you're experiencing a significant amount of stress or discrimination, um, and how well you're integrated with your neighbors and your, and your community is also implicated here. And then finally, the healthcare system has a role to play in terms of determinants of health. 
So it could be something as broad as whether or not individuals have healthcare coverage, but also down to the issue of whether or not the providers are linguistically and culturally competent and the overall quality of care being received. So implicit biases um, that we have are also implicated in cancer health disparities. So these are our unconscious thoughts about individuals um, based on their membership in a particular group. And so what the literature shows specifically around cancer is that implicit, higher implicit racial bias of oncologists is associated with shorter patient interactions between that provider and the patient. It's also associated with less patient-centered and supportive care, more patient difficulty remembering the contents of the interaction, and less patient confidence in being able to follow through with the recommendations of that provider. And so this is just some data looking at the, the implications, the direct quantifiable implications of those different biases on the patient treatment outcomes. Another area that is implicated for cancer health disparities is issues around trust. Um, and specifically, this recent poll looked at the distrust in medical providers on this slide. So what they, they asked in the poll was, do you think doctors not providing the same level of care to Black people is a reason why they have worse health outcomes on average than white people? And through these three different charts, you'll see the responses by individuals who identified as being Black, Hispanic, and then white. Um, there's a notable difference in terms of those groups and considering whether or not trust is related to either a major reason for those worse health outcomes to not a reason at all. The poll similarly asked the question as it related to trust in the healthcare system. So it asked, generally speaking, how often do you think our healthcare system treats people unfairly based on their race or ethnic background. And just as before, there are three charts here. They represent the responses by individuals identifying as Black, Hispanic, or white, with the, the green color at the bottom being individuals that felt like very often that was the case, on up to the gray at the top of the pyramid, individuals either did not answer or the just below that, the response was never. So again, a, good, a considerable variability between those who believe that there is a role to play from our healthcare system in terms of the poor or unfair treatment that individuals from racial ethnic backgrounds receive. So that's a little bit about what some of the challenges are. I want to briefly talk about you know, what is needed to make the health system better. And so we propose here a few things that we think are very much achievable. First and foremost, I think there's a need for increased intercultural awareness and certainly being aware of the different um, groups that come in for our care and what some of the unique needs may be. A second um, recommendation is around unconscious bias training and ongoing checks for that. So being able to realize what may be some of those biases that we bring into the healthcare system and how they may, having a, may be having a ne negative impact on patient outcomes and treatment. And so being able to bring those into the conscious mind so that we can do something about them, particularly in terms of making sure that those biases don't negatively impact the patients that we're caring for. And oftentimes checking in. So it's not just you do the one-time training, but we need to have um, on an ongoing basis, some way to check back in to make sure that those biases aren't creeping back up. A third recommendation is, you know, trying to move towards improved relationships and trust building between patients and providers. As was shown before, we see that there is a direct negative impact when patients and providers don't have that trusting relationship. And we also saw from the poll that there is some variability in terms of how people rate those relationships. So needing to improve that relationship between patients and providers so that our patients do have a sense of trust in in um, the providers that they're seeing. And then lastly, I think, is increasing the diversity in the biomedical workforce. So we've also seen literature that suggests that many uh, folks of color particularly um, prefer to have providers that look like them or have a similar background. And therefore, that may be one of the things that might help to build up the trust in both providers and the medical system. 
but we also know currently our biomedical workforce does not represent the overall population. And so here's an example of where some of the biases and challenges might, may show up in, in terms of HCC treatment and planning. So there's, there are two patients presented here, both males. Patient A is age 61, married, has gone to college, has private insurance, has a little bit in terms of their clinical presentation for their cancer. Patient B is very similar in age. This person is, however, not married, um, did not go on to college, and they have Medicaid or government insurance. And their clinical presentation is a little bit different, but still um, presenting with symptoms. And so the question here is, what do you think would be the treatment of choice for each of these patients? So I'll pause just a second for you to kind of think about that. So now if you've got that in mind, what you recommend, one of the things that the literature suggests is that the patient on the right, the patient B, would be more likely to go in and have some kind of invasive treatment than the patient on the left. And that we, again, may attribute to particular biases around whether or not this person may, in fact, go on to follow the treatment recommendations. It may also be about whether or not the insurance that the person has may be more equipped to do some of the other more invasive treatments. Um, but there are a lot of things out there to be considered about this example. But what we see in the literature is that typically individuals that have government insurance or no insurance that may not have some of the social supports are oftentimes recommended for different treatments than individuals that seem to have a little bit more of those resources as in patient A. It goes without saying that the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly impacted a lot of what we do across the healthcare system. And so we also know that the medically underserved, um, in addition to cancer, are also those populations that are significantly impacted by the pandemic. Um, these are just a couple of the headlines that have come out in the last year about some of the challenges in terms of reaching those who are most vulnerable from either a racial ethnic standpoint, socioeconomic standpoint, or even a geographic standpoint, and really highlighting some of the things that have been mentioned before. So Black individuals, for example, asking why should we trust you when it comes down to COVID-19 and maybe even more hesitant or skeptical around vaccines. Other folks are highlighting the racial disproportionate number of individuals who are uh, in those clinical trials that are related to the vaccine, as well as the higher rates of deaths from COVID-19. So we can't discount some of the challenges that already exist that are outside of the treatment um, that we have in, in cancer um, to think about how they may, in fact, influence our patients as they're coming in um, for their cancer treatment. And so also in thinking about the way forward, um, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement you know, really identifies health equity in a sense of trying to make sure that people have an equal opportunity to attain their full health potential. And then on the flip side of that, inequity will be that there's differences. Oftentimes those are at a systemic level, and they, but they are avoidable and they are certainly unjust. And these issues can happen at the institutional level, particularly around racism. So we're not speaking about individual people. So as an individual, I have these racial views or biased views against another individual. Institutionally, we're talking about things that are baked into the system that really does make a difference for one group versus the other just by virtue of their identification with that group. And then we've also talked about these multiple determinants of health before, um, referencing them as social determinants and how they also influence the health status. In addition, this graph really just highlights how, you know, how to improve that health equity. There are lots of ways to do that, building infrastructure, addressing those multiple determinants or social determinants, eliminating racism and other forms of, of oppression, particularly at the systemic level, partnering with communities and doing community engagement, and then making health equity a strategic priority. All of these things are what we can do as a member of the healthcare system to advance health equity. And more recently, the, the Institute of Medicine did this assessment around eliminating healthcare inequities. And what they found was differences in the kinds and qualities of healthcare received by individuals in the US, particularly minorities and non-minorities in this report. So they found disparities exist and they are associated with worse health outcomes. They also found that 
healthcare disparities occur in the context of the broader inequality that we've been talking about. So again, outside and those social determinants, there are certainly multiple factors that are involved and biases, stereotypes, prejudice, and so forth um, also contribute to those disparities. They, this report also found that a small number of studies are suggesting that racial and ethnic minority patients are more likely to refuse treatment, but I would caution to say that that's probably the case because some of the other things that we've talked about, um, the poll previously about distrust both in the provider and the medical care system may also play into the, the smaller number of individuals refusing treatment. So let's move to discussing how racial disparities and social determinants affect the care of our HCC patients. So literature presented here talked about the cumulative incidence of liver transplant waiting list outcomes by insurance type. And so as you can look at the graph, one of the, the takeaway points is that individuals who have public insurance are less likely to be brought up earlier on on those transplant waiting lists. So those who have private insurance, so in this data set, looking at the Kaiser Permanente um, versus other private, those individuals are spending less and less time on the transplant list and their likelihood of actually moving forward to transplant is much higher. Similarly, this study looked at the, the liver transplant dropout um, stratified by insurance type and reason. So again, looking at the same cohort of Kaiser Permanente insured, individuals versus other private insurance versus public, you'll be able to see that there is some difference in terms of um, both the reason that individuals and the percentage of those who were on that wait list or dropped out of the waiting list. And this slide looks across the country at the incidence by state for liver and bile duct cancers. Again, you can draw your attention, the, the red colors in each of these maps indicate individuals who have the highest degree of incidence for, for this liver and bile duct cancers. The bluer colors are individuals or states that have a lower incidence and then a wider grayed out that's typically um, those states where we don't have sufficient data um, or the data was so small that it was suppressed. What you might notice is that there are some geographic patterns in terms of who has the incidence of uh, liver and bile cancer and then there are also disparities as exist by race and ethnicity. And then these graphs talk about diagnosis and mortality. So on the left is late stage liver and bile duct diagnosis between 2013 and 2017. Um, again, you can see some of the similar patterns of um, racial and ethnic dis uh, disparities. And on the right, it's looking at liver and bile duct mortality between 2013 and 2017. Again, racial and ethnic disparities are shown um, typically in both of these where you have a higher rate of Hispanic and Black individuals, both in terms of diagnosis and um, death. And so looking a little bit more in terms of what might be contributing conditions that also show up, uh, we know that racial and ethnic minorities are at higher risk of other conditions that are associated with outcomes for HCC. This graphic really talks about those, so metabolic disorders, hepatitis, obesity, cirrhosis, and NASH are all of those combinations that may be contributing to the poor outcomes that we see here. So that the point of being able to really screen for these other conditions that may have a negative impact on HCC treatment. So finding out whether or not those have a past history, as well as trying to identify and address issues around metabolic disorders and obesity in particular. This slide that describes a study looking at the relationship between insurance type at diagnosis and survival. So similar to um, the presentation before, we see that there is a difference between those individuals who have private insurance versus those with public insurance is the middle um, line and then those who are uninsured. So in, uninsured individuals have the worst survival of all of those with localized disease. And so that's really apparent there. We also see more regional disease that uninsured individuals have the worst survival at the regional stage. And then um, thinking of more distant survival disparities by insurance status were less apparent in that case. But certainly localized and regional, we see a clear difference in terms of survival um, based on whether or not you have insurance and what type of insurance. So patient population at increased risk for developing HCC. We again mentioned earlier, metabolic disorders, all of those things listed there, 
um, may make them at increased risk. We also know that HCC incidence is expected to increase again in older populations and that liver cirrhosis and hepatic dysfunction often complicate treatment. And for screening and surveillance, we, we understand that populations likely to benefit from participation in the screening program include those folks that were mentioned before that are at higher risk. So we should um, make sure that these are individuals that are prioritized for screening. We also know that screening and surveillance of these conditions often lead to, you know, identifying more, many more Hispanic and Black populations who are at risk. And, and so that's necessary so that we won't delay their diagnosis and leave them ineligible for some of the, um, the treatments that we know are much more likely to lead to longer term survival. So the screening recommendations are to screen with ultrasound every six months and or an AFP for patients at risk. And then the other recommendation is around, you know, looking at the evidence that suggests improved outcomes for patients with HCC in the setting of HBV or HCV uh, cirrhosis when either one of those is successfully treated. So we'll move on to commu our community of learning forum, strategies for advocating for action within your clinical practice. So how can we advocate for action? Um, there are several things that I think are really important for us as members of the healthcare system to advocate. So first, increased education, awareness, and training. That education and training is for both ourselves, our colleagues, our trainees, healthcare leaders, and policymakers. Making sure that we're all aware of these issues and that we can point to solutions that we can um, lead in this area. The second is support funding for early detection programs. Um, we know that early detection oftentimes means the difference between being able to get an effective treatment in and long-term survival. So making sure that we can come in and detect cancers early so that we can have individuals with the most opportunities to get the appropriate care. Um, the third recommendation is supporting efforts to increase access to cancer care. Uh, we still have a number of individuals that don't have as easy access to cancer care. So whether or not it's by um, geographic challenges in terms of those who may be in rural areas are not able to access um, oncologists or other um, types of cancer care, but we've got to do our part to make sure that everyone who needs cancer care has access. We can also promote programs for organ donation, particularly around African-Americans, um, Hispanics, and other racial ethnic minorities who tend to have rates of organ donation that are much lower than other populations. And then lastly, partnering with local state advocates like the American Cancer Society, Cancer Action Network that is always advocating for more resources for individuals who with cancer. We can also improve communication and promote awareness among underserved populations at higher risk. And so part of it is training individuals, both those who already have cancer and their support systems and loved ones. So we want to make sure that we have culturally competent training and information that we are utilizing patient-centered modalities like motivational interviewing in which the provider is speaking directly with the patient and identifying that person's values and connecting that with care and treatment. And then we also want to make sure that, again, we're checking, we're aware of and checking implicit biases that may pop up in the clinical encounter. We want to actively work to reduce and eliminate those biases. Uh, we also want to invest in community engagement. Um, so we often find that there's greater trust in the medical system when the, the healthcare system and providers are going into the community and, and helping to serve and recognize what the community's needs are. We can also employ staff with training in social work and case management and individuals who have a specialty to identify where the barriers and challenges are for individuals to get the appropriate care and then being able to have those resources to address those challenges. Uh, we want to also utilize patient navigators. They've been found to be um, very effective in one-on-one -on -one relationships with patients to identify those barriers and then link them to things like social work and case management if those barriers are particularly at the social determinants level. And then lastly, you know, a number of facilities have employed community health workers. These are individuals who are steeped in the community that you know, are very aware of the cultural context 
and they are interfacing and working with the healthcare system in addition to working with individuals in the community. Um, and they have been shown to be quite effective in working with underserved populations. Now I'd like to welcome Dr. Joseph Lovett, who will highlight the latest emerging evidence in HCC and how this impacts current clinical practice. Hello, I am Dr. Jose Maria Llobet. I am Professor of Medicine and Director of the Liver Cancer Program at Mount Sinai, New York, and Professor of Medicine at the University of Barcelona. Thank you, Dr. Baskin, for your important work in minority health, health disparities, and cancer care. You nicely defined for us how racial disparities and social determinants affect HCC care. Now I'm going to talk about molecular target therapies in HCC. And here you have the outline of my presentation. We'll talk about epidemiology, pathogenesis, target therapies, and combination therapies. As you know, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma is the sixth most common cancer globally, the fourth leading cause of cancer-related death with more than 850,000 new cases diagnosed every year around 40,000 in the US. It's the leading cause of death in cirrhotic patients and there is uh, an increasing incidence globally and it is expected to reach 1 million cases by 2025. This slide summarizes the mortality trends of patients with different malignancies in the US between 1990 and 2009. And as you can see, for almost all solid tumors have been a significant decrease in mortality with two exceptions, melanoma in males and liver and bile duct cancers, both in males and females with an increase in mortality ranging from 40 to 60%. Uh, which are the main risk factors for the development of HCC? We know almost all of them. Hepatitis B virus infection represents at this point 54% of uh, the attributable fraction of uh, HCCs globally. Hepatitis C virus infection is still is the main cause of HCC in the West uh, and accounting for 31% of the cases. Then we have alcohol-related HCC, 20%, and NASH, non-alcoholic cyanobatitis, associated to obesity and diabetes. This is a risk factor that is fastly increasing at this point uh, in the West, particularly in the US, where uh, 35 to 40 percent of the adult population is obese. In terms of molecular pathogenesis, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma is one of the tumors with uh, around 40 to 60 mutations per tumor, but only a small proportion of these mutations are known as drivers, oncogenic drivers. And as you can see in this slide on the right-hand side, we have TERT, beta-catenin, P53, ARIT1A, and others above 10%. And unfortunately, the most prevalent mutations in HCC are undruggable at this point. This is a meta-analysis we conducted in close to 1,000 uh, cases of HCC for which whole exon sequencing was available. And again, you have in red, Undruggable, unactionable mutations, TERC 55%, P53, 27%, beta-catenin 26%, and so on and so forth. And in green, you have actionable mutations, and you only have VHGF uh, amplification, uh, FGF19 amplification, and also mutations in JAG1, platelet-derived, all of those less than 10% in prevalence. Overall, 25% of HCCs have actually at least one uh, potential actionable target. And this falls in the low range of uh, the potential actionable targets in oncology, as you can see in this slide, where you have thyroid cancer or melanoma uh, with 80% of the drivers that are potentially actionable. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have prostate, pancreatic cancer, and HCC with 20% or less of the drivers that are actionable. This is a study from Molière, the Catherine Cancer Center. They sequenced uh, uh, 10,000 patients. And as a result of this analysis, 
they were able to treat, based on the mutations identified, 37% of the patients, providing that these patients have any drug available for these targets. And this goes up to 45%, as you can see, in biliary tract cancer, but unfortunately, in hepatocellular carcinoma, only 5% of the patients were able to receive this type of personalized oncology. Let's talk about the therapies that are currently available for this disease. This is just a summary of what we know about the disease. The natural history in blue uh, at early stages without treatment, 36 month, intermediate, 16 month, advanced stage, eight month of median survival. We're moving that to up to 60 month uh, median survival with resection, transplantation, local ablation at early stages up to 26, 30 months for chemobilization at intermediate. And in advance at this point with a tezobep in frontline, recently reported at ASCO-GI, 19 month median survival. Then we have sorafenib and lenvatinib with survivals around 13, 14 months. And in second line, Rego, Cabo, and Ramucirumab with survivals around 10 months. On med needs are certainly adjuvant therapies after resection, local ablation, and combination therapies throughout all the stages of the disease. What trials have been reported up to 2020? Well, we have on the left-hand side the positive trials, sorafenib in SHARP on the Asia-Pacific, atezobet in BRAVE, recently reported in 2020 in frontline. In second line, we have ramucirumab, the REACH2, regorafenib, the resource, and cabozantinib, celestial. These are the positive phase trials. Then you can see the non-inferior trials that reflect that compare lenvatinib versus sorafenib, shows non-inferiority. And in the second watch for superiority, uh, it was not reached. So uh, therefore, lenvatinib uh, was identified as a drug with similar efficacy as compared to sorafenib. And then on the right-hand side, you have all these drugs that have been discarded for the management of HCC, adlotinib, brivanib, sunitinib, linifanib, doxo, Y90, at least for advanced. And then we'll talk about nebo and uh, brivanib, uh, verolimus, timantinib, and pembrolizumab. Uh, here you have the NCCN guidelines and uh, the recently uh, updated uh, recommendations for systemic uh, treatment and the preferred regimes in frontline are sorafenib, lenvatinib, and atezolizumab plus bevacizumab. Whereas in subsequent lines of therapy, you have the drugs that have shown efficacy, certainly Rego, Cabo, Ramu, Lemba, and then you have Nivo, Nivo plus EP and Pembro that has been, these drugs have been approved by FDA based on phase two data and therefore are recommended by these guidelines based on accelerated approval. Let's talk a bit about the immunotherapy. You're very familiar with all types of anti-PDL1, particularly atezolizumab, avelumab, and durbolumab, anti-PD1, mostly Pembro and Nebo in HCC, and anti-CTLA4, for instance, ipilinumab. These drugs are leading to 15 to 50% objective responses in HCCs between 15 and 20%. And here you have an overview of the approvals by FDA. In frontline, we have a TESO plus BEP that was approved in May 2020 for patients in frontline advanced HCC. And then, as I mentioned before, you have Nibolumab, Pembrolizumab, and Nibo-EP that were approved based on phase two data between September 2017 to March 2020. This is for NIBO-EP combination based on phase two data uh, that got first breakthrough designation and then accelerated approval. So what we know about these drugs, here you have the subgroup analysis according to type of response for nibolumab. Patients actually achieving complete or partial response have an outstanding outcome with uh, overall survival beyond 36 months whereas patients uh, achieving stable disease have a median survival of 16 months, and patients with uh, best response as progressive disease, median survival of around nine months. And it seems that this is not associated with the status of PDL one immunostaining assessed by more than 1% of the cells in, in the histological analysis. 
This is the trial that was designed based on the phase two results of nivolumab comparing nivolumab versus orafenib checkmate 459. It was a head-to-head -head comparison. Nivolumab lead to 15% objective responses as opposed to 7% in sorafenib. But uh, the nivolumab was not able to hit the primary endpoint of overall survival, significant differences, despite that uh, median survival for a patient receiving nivolumab, a single agent in frontline was 16.4 at that time, the best survival ever reported in frontline, compared to 14.7 for patients receiving sorafenib, hazard rate 0.85. Similar uh, issue happened with uh, pembrolizumab versus placebo. This is the Keynote 240 comparing uh, pembro versus placebo in second line. Again, pembrolizumab was reported to induce 18% objective response rate as opposed to 4% in placebo. And in survival, the hazard ratio was 0.78, substantially different 13.9 months for second line, as opposed to 10.6 for placebo, but the p-value did not hit the superiority because the pre-specified p-value was 0.017 and the achieved p-value was 0.023. So as you can see uh, in this slide, the Keynote uh, 240 trial, the median survival for pembrolizumab was 13.9 months versus 10.6 months for placebo. In terms of objective response, it was 18.3% for pembro and 4.4 for placebo with a median duration of response or close to 40 months for PEMBRO and 15 months for placebo. Disease control rate was close to 62% in the PEMBRO-Lizumab arm. Certainly, uh, this indicates that these drugs as single agents have activity, uh, probably very strong activity in a subgroup of patients and there is an unmet need to identify those patients. And here you have also uh, with PEMBRO-Lizumab, uh, phase two study and the breakdown of a response according to etiology in a cohort of 104 patients, also supporting the fact that pembrolizumab is inducing objective response, either complete or partial response, in a proportion of patients that at the end uh, will benefit in terms of overall survival. Well, which are these biomarkers for checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy to identify responders? Generally, tumor mutational burden and PDL1 expression are the two biomarkers accepted by regulatory agencies in certain solid tumors. In HCC, we identified years ago the, what we call the immune class that involves 24% of HCCs, and these tumors are somehow inflamed tumors or hot tumors with enrichment of T cells, CDH, TLS, cyto lytic activity and signatures that predict response in other tumors like melanoma. So the actual classification suggests that there are the inflamed hot tumors and the non-inflamed tumors. The inflamed tumors eventually are those that may respond to checkpoint inhibitors and the non-inflamed tumors are those that eventually will not respond to checkpoint inhibitors. And certainly in experimental models, it seems that one of the mechanisms of exclusion, as it happens with melanoma, is the presence of beta-catenin mutations. I mean, experimental models in this nice study in cancer discovery, when and animals with a MYC and P53 mutations were treated with PDL1, they respond. Conversely, they were resistant if the tumor was uh, driven by MYC and beta-catenin. And in humans, uh, we have very few data. Only these uh, studies suggest that those patients that are resistant to checkpoint inhibitors, certainly have an enrichment of mutations of beta-catenin and axin-1. And this is a concept that we need to follow. Uh, now I'm moving to talk about combination therapies that represent a breakthrough in the management of the disease after uh, 12 years of uh, primacy of sorafenib and later on lenvatinib as well as single agents. Well, the concept of hot tumors is very clear. Tumors that have an immune uh, that have an immune tumor microenvironment uh, with uh, CDH enriched with CDH, and uh, tumors that express PDL1, CD4, and so on, 
And these are more prone to respond, whereas uh, cold tumors are those that uh, have a non-immunogenic tumor microenvironment that need another drug to switch this non-immunogenic to immunogenic transform these cold tumors in hot tumors to achieve durable clinical benefit from checkpoint inhibitors. And this certainly might be achieved with BAGF inhibitors that have been widely studied. Beba, Sorafenib, Lemba, Reco, Carbon, Ramo. These uh, uh, drugs uh, might be able to uh, decrease uh, T-Rex, uh, increase uh, dendritic cells and maturation of dendritic cells, decrease M2 macrophages, TAMs, and MDSCs, and certainly uh, favor the immune uh, response to checkpoint inhibitors. Also, TKIs are able to transform these cold tumors that oncogenic signaling-mediated T-cell excluded into uh, hot tumors uh, that have dendritic cell activation, T-cell infiltration, and increased tumor antigen presentation. These TKIs, at least the ones that have demonstrated to be able to switch, are those that are blocking MAP signaling, particularly BRAF, CDK4, and CDK6 signaling, and also wind signaling. In terms of HCC, I'm going to talk about uh, some combinations that have uh, made an impact in the disease. And the most important one is a tezolizumab uh, plus bevacizumab. This is the Embrave 150 trial, whereas this uh, combination was compared to 2-1 to sorafenib, a single agent and a standard of care with a co-primary endpoint of OS and progression-free survival. And as you can see, here, uh, the trial was stopped and the first interim with a hazard ratio of 0.58. And now we have a follow-up of this study recently reported at ASCO GI with a hazard ratio of 0.66. Median survival for a test of app now has been reported to be 19.2 uh, months and um, for sorafenib 13.4 months. So this is a substantial difference achieved by this uh, combination therapy that also had an impact in progression-free survival with a strong difference 6.8 for atezobeb compared to 4.3 for sorafenib. The update information uh, points to a 6.9 months for atezobeb versus 4.3 months for sorafenib with an actual uh, hazard ratio of 0.65. Uh, also differences in terms of objective response assessed by resist 27% for atezobeb, 33% by modified resist. And with the recent update at ASCO uh, GI, we have that for modified resist was 36% and for resist, 30% for atezobeb, significantly different compared to sonafenib. Also, in terms of disease control rate overall, we're talking about 75% disease control rate with the combination compared to 55% for sonafenib. In terms of adverse events overall, uh, the grade 3, 4 uh, treatment-related adverse events accounted for 37% uh, of the cases in atezobeb and 55 for sorafenib. The most remarkable grade 3, 4 were uh, hypertension, certainly, for atezobeb and also LT increase and proteinuria. And for sorafenib, the well-known hypertension and hand-foot skin reaction and also diarrhea were uh, remarkable. Finally, this trial also assessed patient reported outcomes that is increasingly an endpoint that uh, uh, FDA is very interested to, uh, uh, to assess. And certainly time to deterioration of the quality of life uh, was uh, significantly um, uh, longer for atezobeb, 11 0.2 months time to deterioration compared to 3.6 months for sorafenib with a substantial difference. So in this slide, you have a summary of all the trials, the phase three investigations in advanced HCC. Certainly in the left-hand side, you have in front line atezobeb superior to sorafenib. All these uh, figure represents comparisons with sorafenib. Lenvatinib, as you can see in orange, is non-inferior, is crossing the one, but below the upper boundary of 1.08, defined as the limit for non-inferiority. And then on the right-hand side, you have Rego, Ramo, and Cabo, the, all of them in green, 
where you have uh, superiority versus placebo. On both in the left hand side, you have Nibo crossing the one, and in the right hand side, you have Pembro that despite is below uh, the one in terms of upper boundary, did not reach a statistical significance. And therefore, for single agent checkpoint inhibitors, we need biomarkers in order to guide uh, the strategy of treatment. This is the strategy, certainly recently reported at, um, in several papers. Atezobeb will be frontline, and then sorafenib and Lemba might be also frontline in patients that either do not tolerate the drugs, either Atezo or Beb, or have any autoimmune disease or have any contraindication, do not have, for instance, a GI endoscopy. Uh, upper GI endoscopy is required before starting Atezobeb in order to rule out esophageal viruses, or at least to, if there are these viruses, these viruses need to be treated before starting this combination. And then if sorafenib and Lemba are not uh, used in frontline, they certainly might be used in second line, followed by Rego, Cabo, Ramu. And then you have the three drugs uh, involving single agent checkpoint, Nibo, Pembro, or the combination Nibo, EP, that are also approved by FDA in second line. This is another scheme that was recently reported by the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease in Hepatology about the recommendation of frontline and second line and third line therapies. Finally, very briefly, I'm going to talk about other common combinations. And one of those is certainly lembatinib pembrolizumab, but also now more increasingly. Uh, there are triplets in place in terms of trials uh, with cabozantinib uh, combined with Nibo and EP. Uh, so this is the uh, keynote uh, 524 or 116, the lembatinib pembrolizumab is a single arm phase 2 100 patients. Interestingly enough, objective responses were here at the level of 46% by modified resist with disease control rates that also are unprecedented up to 90%. In this phase two study or phase 1b2 study, the median survival was 22 months and the progression-free survival was 9.3 months with this combination. And now we have the LEAP002 as the phase three trial comparing Lemba Pembro versus Lembatinib alone. Another trial that has been reported in JAMA has been Nivolumab plus Ipilinumab, and certainly one of the combinations where it was able to achieve median survival of 22.8 months in second line, and those patients achieving objective response, either complete or partial response, that was at around 30% of the patients, had an outstanding outcome. The median was not rich, but certainly was beyond 33 months. Another uh, study that was uh, conducted was the combination of this uh, Nivo-EP with uh, cabozantinib. Um, and as you can see, as a triplet, the median overall survival was not achieved, but the median progression-free survival was remarkable at 6.8 months. And in terms of uh, adverse events, certainly uh, the triplet uh, uh, doesn't seem to uh, have a non-manageable adverse event profile, despite that certainly uh, the grade 3-4 are slightly higher than with the duplet arm. So in terms of new agents, here you have a list of new agents that are currently tested in combination with checkpoint inhibitors. And of course, you have regorafenib here, and you have galunisertib, also a TGF-beta uh, inhibitor that is uh, currently in place. Uh, I have to say that uh, the combination therapies are now the hot topic, and, and really, we are now in a new era of treatment in HCC, where we will not probably see any more trials with single agents, and not all the trials will be about uh, we know the first in class is certainly a tezobeb, but we need to know if this is also the best in class or other combinations may even uh, have a better outcome uh, when treating patients in frontline HCC. And here you have a summary 
of how these immunotherapies now are currently being tested in the adjuvant setting. In advance, again, we know the first in class, let's see uh, if this is the best therapy or the new trials, uh, LIB002, testing Lemba Pembro, Cosmic 312, testing Atezo Cabo, Checkmate 9DW, testing Nibo EP or the Himalaya trial, testing Durva plus Treme, or the rescue trial, Carmelizumab plus Abatinib. Let's see if they will have a different outcome or even an improved outcome. So in conclusion, in terms of epidemiology, molecular drivers, the incidence of liver cancer is growing globally and will reach 1 million cases by 2025, and only 25% of molecular drivers in HCC and actionable. And unfortunately, this data, this information has not yet impacted precision oncology in HCC because most of the most prevalent uh, drivers are undrugable. In terms of systemic treatment, now atezolizumab plus bevacizumab is unquestionably the standard of care in frontline to superiority to sorafenib. Sorafenib and lembatinib uh, can be also still frontline in patients with any contraindication for atezobeb or with pariseal, uh, with esophageal varices. And otherwise will be second line. And then also those patients that progress to these regimes uh, may be treated with rigorafenib, particularly rigorafenib in case that the patient receives uh, sorafenib uh, in a prior therapy or cabozantinib ramosirumab in patients with FP more than 400. And finally, we have that Nibo alone, pembrolizumab alone, or even NIBO-EP are FDA-approved based on uh, phase two data and got accelerated approval. And the emerging therapies now are mostly all of them in combination. And phase two, phase three trials are currently conducted in the adjuvant, intermediate, and advanced HCC with uh, certainly most of the instances with uh, uh, immune therapies uh, in, in, in the set of drugs that are currently tested. Dr. Baskin and I thank you for your attention. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by a medical education grant from Exelixis Incorporated and an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.